So, Matt, did you know that whenever you say the word poop, your mouth moves the same way your butthole does when you poop? Uh, no. Yep. The same is true for the phrase explosive diarrhea. <laughs> and welcome to the graveyard thank you for joining us tonight my name is adam and my name's matt now pull up a tombstone or settle into your casket and get comfortable because this is graveyard tales (laughs) well 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 how are you matt well i'm pretty good good it's uh it's gotten hot down here in Tennessee. <laughs> it really has. <laughs> it, we went from, it was like cold wearing jackets, and then yeah. all of a sudden I'm sweating my butt off at work. Yeah. It's, this is this is your Graveyard Tales weather report. Yep, there you go. From Middle Tennessee. There you go. <laughs> Not that any of y'all cared at all. None of you care. We just, <laughs> we somehow always seem to go to that. It does. It's because we gripe about stuff. That's why. That's right. Um, so on a non-gripey note, wanted to let you guys know that we do have a new design up on T Public for merch. It's the pulp horror design that you've seen us have on our Facebook and Twitter and stuff. So go find that link, click on it, go check it out. Um, it's, and it's awesome. It, it's great. I mean, it is so cool. It is. And, you know, we can't thank Eric enough for doing that for yeah. us and allowing us to put it out there for you guys to enjoy. So go grab your shirt, a mug whatever um enjoy baby onesie. a baby onesie yep <laughs> always with the dang baby so i just think it's the craziest thing <laughs> it is it yeah is. why not why okay. not i mean graveyard tales baby onesie why not um so even though we don't have a sponsor this week we would like to ask you guys to go check out our sponsors from other weeks because it really does help us keep doing the show um because it shows that you know their ad time is working and so they mm-hmm. will keep, you know, buying ads. So please go check them out. Go to their website. You know, if you feel like purchasing something, use our code, get a discount. But definitely go check out our sponsors. So, Matt, what are we talking about tonight? Okay, so tonight, Adam and I are, are looking into possibly the greatest archaeological find in history. The discovery of the tomb of King and I'm going to screw it up. <laughs> Tut Ankh Amun. Yep. Or as you guys know him as King Tut. Yep. And, and Tut in common, as we Tut say. Common. <laughs> <laughs> or as Amanda said last night, if it's really bad, it's Tut Uncommon. Yep. Tut Uncommon. <laughs> but not only that, the curse that's associated with the discovery of his tomb. Yes. And so... We're we're gonna we're gonna go into some details about uh, who King Tut was and in his short reign what he was able to accomplish, and we're gonna talk about the history behind uh, the man that found the tomb mm-hmm. and the aftermath of what happened 
in the next 10 years after he found it yep. because and man it gets it gets a little weird it does and we're going to try to condense it all down into one episode That's for y'all right. <laughs> since we did a two-parter for y'all last time we're going to have a don't a, worry yep. this is going to be a one-parter you, if it kills us yeah you're you'll have a beginning a middle and an end all in one episode we promise That's right so like matt was saying among one of the most famous curses that we know of is the curse of the Pharaoh or King Tut's curse. And ever since King Tutankhamun's tomb was discovered in Egypt's Valley of the Kings, stories have been passed around about those people who dared to violate the boy king's final resting place and the terrible curses that they brought upon themselves. Yeah, yeah. So who was King Tut? Well, King Tut was an Egyptian pharaoh of the 18th dynasty, which means he ruled from 1332 to 1323 B.C. in what we know yeah. of as chronology now. That a long time ago. Yes, a real long time ago. Um, and this was during the period of Egyptian history known as the New Kingdom or sometimes the New Empire period. Now, he ascended to the throne in 1333 B.C., at the age of nine or 10 years old. They're not entirely sure, but around that age. Now, King Tut was, he, he was a slightly built person. He wasn't a real big, uh, real big guy. He was roughly around five foot, six inches tall. Um, he had large front incisors and an overbite that was characteristic of the Tutmosed Royal line that he belonged to. Now, research showed that Tut also had a slightly cleft palate and possibly a mild case of scoliosis, which is a medical condition where the spine kind of deviates to the side from where it mm -hmm. should normally be. Mm -hmm. um, and he also had an elongated head. Now, people have said the elongated head could be due to head binding, but there's not really much information about uh, Egyptians doing the head binding as babies. So th that's not really a... Uh, that boy's got a long head. He does. <laughs> um, but, you know, they think that uh, it was probably due to the incest of the royal family. That's why he had the cleft palate, the scoliosis, and an elongated head was just issues from inbreeding amongst the family. Now, examination of Tut's body has also re revealed deformations in his left foot that was caused by necrosis of bone tissue. Now, the affliction may have forced Tut to walk with the use of a cane um, because there were many of those actually found in his tomb. Mm -hmm. So, you know, he's a young, young kid, basically. Yeah. He's, he's a little kid. A little kid, and he's having to walk with a cane because of the scoliosis and the issue in his foot. And so he's just not very healthy. He's not, not a healthy young man. Now, in DNA test of Tut's mummy, scientists found DNA from the mosquito-borne parasites that cause malaria. Now, this is currently the oldest known genetic proof of the disease. And more than one strain of the malaria parasite was actually found. So it said that Tut contracted multiple malaria infections. Yeah, they didn't have any DEET 
No. Back in ancient no. Egypt. That's why I couldn't have lived in ancient <laughs> Egypt. I need my deet during imagine. the summer. There's mosquitoes know. everywhere. Oh, my God. So according to National Geographic, um, they said, quote, the malaria would have weakened Tut's immune system and interfered with the healing of his foot. Now, these factors combined with the fracture in his left thigh bone, which scientists had discovered in 2005, may have ultimately been what killed the young king. Well, in 2014, producers of a BBC television documentary said that Tut died in a chariot crash that broke his legs and pelvis and resulted in an infection and perhaps death by blood poisoning. Well, supporters of this theory note that Tut was depicted riding on chariots and also suffered from the deformed left foot that we talked about, making it possible that he did fall and break his legs. But that theory may sound like a good theory, but there's actually no record of such an incident yeah. occurring. Yeah, we still don't know right. exactly what, it, what caused his death. Right, and you would think that with everything else that they have recorded, that if the king died from a chariot race, this would be recorded in, in perpetuity so that we would know. There would be you know, some kind of hieroglyph yeah. that would depict that. Well, you know, Egyptologists still say they that Tut was a a minor pharaoh, which I, I don't. I, I maybe that's because his reign was so short. You know, I mean, essentially ten years. Yeah, and it, you know, there's a. I did a little bit of cursory research on this, and it, 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 Egyptian stuff is kind of a hobby of mine, mm-hmm. if you want to say so. Um, his dad actually was kind of cast out by all of the other priests and stuff mm-hmm. in Egypt because he tried to... He changed the religion. Exactly. Yeah. So he he probably didn't have the power that he could have had had that not happened. Now, he did come back and, and reinstituted the multi-deity um, religion that they had, but... His dad probably screwed up his pharaohdom. Well, and it, it's funny because, and, and and again, this we're 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 heading down a tangent because Adam and I discussed that we could we could make this like a history lesson. Seriously, with I mean, the history of King Tut is very very interesting. But one one aside to this is that what Adam's talking about is up until the reign of his father. The the national religion, I guess, <laughs> they worshipped Amun-Ra, mm-hmm. you know, and he changed it so that they worshipped um, what Amun, the mm-hmm. the the disc, the glowing disc god, mm-hmm. um, which was not necessarily the sun, okay, because Amun-Ra was the the god of the sun, um, and and yet they didn't like it, you know, and. And and Tut's father did away with the idea of the afterlife, everything, things that are so vital to Egyptian history. You know, all the things they did, the mummification process included, was for the afterlife. Right. And now you've got a pharaoh that's just going, eh, no, when you die, you're done. Yeah, And he you know, even moved the capital city, Yeah, you know, to <clears throat> many, many miles away. So the, the key to take away from this is King Tut put it back the way it was 
as a boy king, he put things back the way they were historically, making him much more favorable to the Egyptians. Right. And that's why he was able to get where he got at such a young age. So you would think some, an achievement like that, essentially reuniting, you know, the people of Egypt would have granted him a much higher stature in history than it did. Yeah. Um, and that, or, you know, you can look at it the other way that he's just lucky he did that because his dad screwed up everything else for him. <laughs> maybe, so, maybe it was a situation where it's like, your dad messed this up bad. Yeah, listen. You, you have got to fix it. Listen, you nine-year-old boy. <laughs> you're going to do what we say. You, and, know? you know, he had an advisor named I, who right. was kind of like one of these, you know, I'm going to tell you what to do, and you're going to listen to me because this is what needs to happen. Right. But he may not have been on the up and up. You yeah. know, he was he was aiming for the throne himself oh, sure. because Tut had, you know, at nine years old, he, he wasn't producing any heirs. Yep. And didn't have, didn't have a bright future ahead of him with his medical conditions right. and stuff. But back to the subject. Um, now, Egyptologists that were involved in that British television program still have their doubts really about what happened. Now, a a man named Christopher Naunton said, we cannot at present know how Tutankhamun died. Um, And he is the former head of the Egypt Exploration Society. Um, He says the BBC documentary started from the premise that the mummy showed evidence of the king having suffered a severe trauma to his left torso and side. The filmmakers commissioned research that showed that this kind of injury could have been caused by the impact of a chariot wheel, but not by a fall from a chariot. Now, what remains unclear, Naunton says, is whether this skeletal damage occurred during the king's life or long after his death as a result of the handling of the mummy after the discovery of the tomb by Howard Carter. He says it's quite possible that what ultimately killed him has left no trace. Because, you know, like we said, he was riddled with malaria. You know, he had a lot of uh, diseases, and it it could have been none of these. There there was no record of his death, really. You know, if they recorded it, it's gone. We've lost it. We may never find it. We may find it, but we may never find it. And his tomb itself was not as big as they've seen with some other Egyptian pharaohs. Yeah. It was smaller. It looked hastily built. You know, stuff was crammed in there. I mean, he had, it was like the antechamber of another pharaoh's tomb mm-hmm. was his tomb about that same size. And they and they thought that, too. Yeah. You know, they thought for a while that there were there were other tombs nearby or attached to that. I mean, ground penetrating radar pretty much, I think, is taking that off the table. That they, they found what's there um, as far as King Tut's tomb goes. But you're right. right. You know, it, it, it's, it was not as large and as opulent as what other Pharaoh's tombs were, but... The, the odd thing was is all the other tombs that had been found by archaeologists were empty. Yep. As They'd far been as the, the riches and everything, yep. because, you know, raiding, raiding tombs 
was, you know, it was it was the national pastime. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much for a while. <laughs> you know, they, I mean, there was an entire town right outside of the Valley of Kings, and it was full of nothing but Tomb Raiders. Yep. You know, I mean, that's, you know, that's what happened. And, and in fact, you know, we're going to get into this. Tut's tomb had been entered twice. Mm-hmm. There was evidence that Tomb Raiders had gotten in there twice. But the majority of the, of the riches were still there. Yep. Which is, again, strange. Um, but we're going to get into this. So we, we, we come forward to, um, to the early 1900s. And and we meet a man. That's a long jump. It's a long jump from where we left you to now. But that's significant because all of that time has passed, and Touch Tomb has not been found. Right. But you know that nobody was really looking for it because again, he's a minor pharaoh. There's no record of his death, and the Egyptians were good record keepers. Mm-hmm. You know, so there's not a lot of evidence that he was even there. You know, he was pretty much forgotten about. Right. But a gentleman named Howard Carter, he had been working in Egypt for about 31 years before he ever found King Tut's tomb. Now, Carter started his career as an artist. He was 17 years old, and he would go with these other archaeologists, and he would illustrate what they found. Paint me like one of your French <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> so here he goes. He's going around with these archaeologists, and he's he's drawing. Of course, you know they 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 didn't have you know easily accessible you know photography. You know at this time, you know it was very expensive, and you know it was it was a long process. And here they are; they're essentially out in the desert. So. You know, that kind of equipment wasn't meant to be used in the heat and the dry and the dust. So he's out here drawing what he sees, you know, to publish in journals and newspapers and and everything. So this is how he gets his start. But in 1899, Howard Carter was was appointed the Inspector General of Monuments in Upper Egypt. You know, he he had essentially gained such credibility with all these archaeologists and he had seen so much and knew so much that they they appointed him to this position now in 1905 carter resigned from this job and in 1907 as an archaeologist he went to work for one lord carnarvon Carnarvon. Carnarvon. I bet I've said it a thousand times. <laughs> I almost screwed up. Okay. It sounds like a pirate name. Yeah, it does. Carnarvon. <laughs> well, his real name is even worse. So, George Edward Stanhope Molnew Herbert, the fifth Earl of Carnarvon. We'll, we'll just go with Carnarvon. <laughs> We're going to call him Carnarvon from this point forward. Or Carney. Now, now Lord Carnarvon was, he was the... Uh, he was the real life Indiana Jones. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was kind of a the the billionaire playboy. He loved adventure. He traveled all over the world, um, and he loved he loved race cars. In fact, he had an one of the very first race cars ever. I mean, the automobile was brand new. You know, in this time, I mean, you know, and he had one. And he loved to drive, and he loved to drive fast. Now, so like twenty five miles an hour, <laughs> probably well, maybe a little faster than <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, thirty five miles an hour. But anyway, all that speed wound up 
him having a, a, a car accident. Mm-hmm. Okay. It was one of the first car accidents. Yeah, <laughs> anyway, there you go. So in 1901, he has this car accident and, and it leaves him in really poor health. Okay. So now the damp English weather really affects him and he just can't do it. And his doctor said, you, you really got to get out of England when wintertime comes. And his practice of the time, English people that were really sick, especially with respiratory illnesses and things like that, for the winter, they were sent to Egypt because, again, Cairo was under the control of the British Army. Sure. Okay. So off we go to Egypt. And so he started spending his winters in Egypt. Now, he still got an adventurous heart. And the most popular thing going on in Egypt at the time was all these archaeological digs. So he teams up with old Howard Carter, and they go, let's go searching for some treasure. For some, you know, we're going to find some, some tomb that hasn't been discovered yet. We're, we're going to do this. We're going we're gonna to become famous. That just sounds like so much fun to me, you know, going out and looking for something like that yeah. that has never been discovered before. That's right. Wouldn't that be amazing? It's incredible. It's I mean, just freaking amazing. The thing is, People still do it to this day. Yeah. I mean, look at the Oak Island people. Yeah. I mean, you know, they they don't know if anything is there. Right. You know, they're just, they're looking. But what we learned from Oak Island is those kind of trips cost money. And, and take a long time. And take a long time. Carnarvon had the money and he had the time. He just didn't have the physical ability to do it himself. Right. So that's why he brought on Howard Carter. It's like, you're going to be my legs out there taking care of this. So they had some early success. You know, they they worked on several seasons, um, you know, doing uh, different excavation and digs uh, until um, World War One pretty much brought all the digs in Egypt to a standstill. You know, nobody was working. You know, the war was going on. But after, you know, the war was over, so after about a two-year hiatus, they, they kicked back into high gear. And so in the fall of 1917, Lord Carnarvon and Carter had really narrowed their focus to the Valley of the Kings. So Carter had these artifacts that he had found. He had, like, um, he had found a cup. He had found some gold foil. And he had found um, like a, a, a small amount of, of funeral items that all had the name of Tutankhamun. So he had the idea that the tomb has got to be around here. Mm-hmm. You know, makes sense. This is this undiscovered tomb of a minor pharaoh. It's got to be around here somewhere. Right. So this is where we ought to be looking. Now, so he thought based on his calculations that the location of, of King Tut's tomb was right in a specific area, but it was so large that it it was going to take years for them to search this area. But Carter had a pretty unique way of doing things. He was very systematic and he would grid out things. And, and so, I mean, essentially yard by yard, he is searching you know, he is looking for anything, something, a clue, you know, not even just to just luck up and find the tomb, just to find something that would narrow his 
his field a little bit. Right, right. You know, so the, so that he could he could hone in on where this was. So he's excavating down to the bedrock to to try to look for these clues, look for any indication that he's in the right spot or something that will lead him to the right spot. Now there were some there were some workmen's hunt huts. Now these were like for the people that built the tombs. I mean, so these are these huts are ancient in in and of themselves, and they were at the foot of the tomb of Ramesses the sixth. And there were these jars at the entrance of the tomb uh, of Merimpta. So these jars were at the entrance of this tomb. And he thought, okay, there's something, something has got to be here. So five years, he he's hunting in this one area right here at the base of the tomb of Ramesses the sixth. And right. the guy I'm not going to try to pronounce again. <laughs> and so, He's got just minimal to show for his all of his hard work. Right. So after it's, five it's years. It's got to be depressing. It does. I mean, and it's not just depressing for him. I mean, it's depressing for his benefactor. Yeah, sure. And, and very expensive. So Carnarvon says, all right, we got to stop. There's there's nothing here. If there was something here, we would have found it in five years. We got to call it off. And so Carter begged him. He's like, look, just. I just need a little more time, just a little more. I can feel it. I'm getting closer. You know, we, we've kind of narrowed it to this area. Let, let me go one more time. And so Carnarvon agrees and says, one more season, but that's it. No more. This is your last shot. So here he goes. So on November 1st, 1922, Carter began his last season working with Carnarvon in the Valley of the Kings. So we mentioned those workmen's huts at the base of the tomb of Ramesses VI. Now, he decided we're going to get rid of these huts and we're going to see what's underneath them. So he went in, exposed the huts, documented everything, and then started digging underneath them. So by the fourth day, Fourth day. I mean, you know, you expect it to be more dramatic. You know, the last day of the final season. No, no, no. Four days. Four days into the final season that he's going to be out there digging. He finds something. A step. And the step had been cut into the rock. And pretty soon he sees more steps going downward into the rock. And the top of what looks like a sealed door. So at that point, they, be, they begin to really dig out. And so on November 4th, um, you know, they're, they're really seeing that there's something down here. And they had, uh, by the next day on the fifth, they had uncovered 12 stairs and a door in front of them, or, or at least the, the upper portion of a door. But on that upper portion of the door, they saw royal seals. So by then Carter knew. Oh sure. We found something. Yep. There's something here. And and boy, he was he was pretty pumped up. So oh, he yeah. tells Carnarvon, listen, he, he sends a telegraph. He goes, get down here. This is what we found. It's big. You know, I'm not going any further until you get here. And so it took a few days. Carnarvon gets down there. Now 
to protect what he had found, Carter had his workmen fill the stairs back up. <laughs> he just covered up what he uncovered. And he left some of his trusted men there to stand guard. So it was about three weeks after he found that first step that Carnarvon was able to get there and Carter could proceed. So on November 23rd, Lord Carnarvon and his daughter, Lady Evelyn Herbert, arrived in Luxor. Now the next day, the workers had cleared the staircase and now exposed all 16 steps and the full face of the doorway. So they're standing outside this tomb and they're looking at this door and Carter can fully see what he hadn't been able to see before um, because the bottom of the doorway was still covered. So with the door fully exposed, they noticed that the upper left of the doorway had been broken through. Remember I said robbers had gotten in here before, but it had been resealed. So the tomb was not intact, but the fact that the tomb had been resealed showed that the tomb was probably not emptied. So they were really hopeful that the robbers had been caught, possibly um, red-handed, and officials had resealed the tomb, and that maybe they didn't get away with much, if anything. So on the morning of November 25th, the sealed doorway was photographed, and the seals were noted, and the door was removed revealing a passageway filled to the top with limestone chips. Now, when they examined closer, Carter could tell that the tomb robbers had dug a hole through the upper left section of the passageway. And again, the hole had been refilled with larger dark rocks. Um, So he he was obvious that it it had been refilled. Now, again, this meant that the tomb had been raided at least twice. Um, Probably the first time being within a few years of the king's burial, before there was a sealed door and a filled passageway. The second time, the robbers would have had to dig through the fill and could only get out with small things. So again, he, he's really hopeful. Mm-hmm. So by the next afternoon, the fill along the 26-foot-long passageway, 26 foot into bedrock, they had managed, you know, yep. to, to dig in there, you know, with... It- Whatever tools. It's amazing what we're, they did. Yeah, we're we're gonna venture into into something more. How in the heck did they do this? Yep. <laughs> you know, that's another episode, by the way, that yeah. we're oh, definitely yeah. going to do. So they got through that passageway and found another sealed door that was almost identical to the first. And again, there were signs that tomb robbers had been there. So, but by, by this time, everybody is on pins and needles. They are just so excited about what they're going to find, and, and they're really hopeful that it's going to be something significant. So if there was anything inside, it would have been the discovery of a lifetime for Carter. Now, if the tomb was was relatively intact, it would have been something that the world had never seen. Remember, all of these archaeological digs had revealed tombs that had been raided. So there was really nothing there to see other than the tomb itself. So they managed to get in through the, the, the sealed door at the end of the passageway. And Carter looks in, you know, holding a torch. And of course, you know, everybody's standing around him. And that's where the famous line comes from when Carnarvon, just overcome with excitement, says, can you see anything? And Carter just says, yes, wonderful things. Now, 
we could go into huge, minute detail about all the things that Carter found in King Tut's tomb. But again, we'd really be giving you guys a history lesson mm-hmm. as opposed to a Graveyard Tales episode. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but just briefly, um, inside the tomb, it was relatively untouched. And it was filled with shrines, statues, a chariot, furniture, and clothing. The coffin in which Tut's mummy lie was made of solid gold. Okay? Scholars estimate that the monetary value of the tomb itself would be in the billions, with just the coffin itself being valued at around $6 million um, based on a... uh, on um, an estimate in 1980, which it would be worth so much more now because of the price of gold. Um, That's just crazy. But, you know, the the reason that finding this tomb was so significant is, number one, there were no intact tombs to find, and there certainly weren't ones filled with gold and riches that – you know, not only could you say, oh, my God, I mean, look at the value of all of this stuff. But to look at it and see exactly what was put in there. Yep, I mean, exactly. They they knew this was what Egyptians did, because, again, Egyptians were very good record keepers. So archaeologists had a, a good knowledge of what would have been in there. Yep. You know, but they didn't see it when they opened the tomb. You know, they saw the evidence in in the hieroglyphics on the walls, but they just didn't have the the artifacts. Right. Yeah. It, it was the first time that they had those. Yeah. And here is this small tomb, packed to the gills, with with gold and jewels. I mean, they said you know it was full of, you know, ebony, you know, precious minerals, gems, along with gold. I mean, yeah. you know, it was. I think there was a, a, a chariot, disassembled chariot. Yeah, I mean, in there it was his condo made of stona. Yep, there you go. Boom. <laughs> Been waiting the whole show. <laughs> so they all went in there, and the first the first four people were, of course, Carter, Carnarvon, Lady Evelyn, and I believe there was one other one other gentleman that went in there with them that I didn't see the name of. But there was still a little bit of fear. Sure. Because they knew that like other Pharaoh's tombs, this one carried a curse. Right. So let's talk about curses. Um, Like Matt said, all of the tombs were supposed to, you know, be cursed to anybody who came inside. And that caused the Egyptian curses to be some of the most notorious worldwide. Because they got to keep out these dang grave robbers. Exactly. And, you know, so stories and rumors surrounding curses placed on tombs and mummies have existed for centuries, millennia. Um, there are records dating back to the medieval and early modern periods stating that Egyptian burial sites should not be tampered with because they and the mummies residing in them possess some unknown evil qualities. So it's believed that the curses were placed around burial sites by priests in order to protect the mummies and 
everything during their spiritual journey after death. Now, these beliefs form the idea behind the so-called curse of the pharaohs. And that is that anyone who entered or disturbed the tomb of a mummy, particularly a pharaoh, would be subject to bad luck and inevitable death. Now, the power of a curse as a deterrent, it really depends upon its location within the tomb. Now, curses were not commonly recorded in the tombs of ancient Egypt, but they were used on occasion for the protection of the burial place. Um, tomb curses would be inscribed in the tomb chapel, uh, the more public part of the tomb complex, and also on walls, false doors, stella, statues, and sometimes coffins. Real Indiana Jones type stuff. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Then I've, I've been sitting here thinking, besides Indiana Jones, this whole thing kind of sounds like a Nick Cage movie. You know, like, yeah, it, it, I can just see Nick Cage screaming about something in, you know, in one of these scenes. Some of the more unusual curses include what's called the donkey curse. And that threatened the violator of the tomb with some some real bad stuff happening to you by a donkey, <laughs> which was the animal of Seth. Um, another complete curse comes from the administrator of the 18th dynasty, Amenhotep, son of Hapu. He threatens anyone who would damage his tomb with a lengthy list of punishments. Now, the perpetrator would lose their earthly possessions and honors, be incinerated in a furnace in execration rites, capsize and drown at sea, have no successors, receive no tomb or funerary offerings of their own, and their bodies would decay because they will starve without sustenance and their bones will perish. That's bad. That's real bad, <laughs> especially when, you know, you believe that your you your spiritual journey continues after life. Right. And so at that point you are just dead. Yeah. You know, you have no afterlife because yeah. of this curse. Now, legends surrounding this curse of the pharaohs apparently started being written down in the 7th century AD when the Arabs conquered Egypt and could not read the hieroglyphics. They wouldn't really be deciphered until the beginning of the 19th century where, you know, Matt began the story of the the archaeologists finding all these tombs. Now, the preservation of mummies was probably pretty strange for the Arabs to see um, because many stories were told that they believed that if one entered a tomb and uttered a magical formula, they would be able to materialize objects made invisible by the ancient Egyptians. Also, it was thought that through some magic rites, mummies could actually come back alive. So they believed that the Egyptians would protect their tombs with any magical means necessary or curses on anyone who entered. Arab writers warned people not to tamper with the mummies or their tombs because they knew Egyptians practiced magic during the funeral ceremonies. Now, there was a book that was published, and it was actually one of the first books published on Egyptian curses. It was published in 1699, and there were hundreds of these books to mm -hmm. follow. So we go from there to let's talk about the people involved with King Tut's tomb and what happened to him. Yeah, because it, it gets a little weird. It does. 
So the first person that we want to talk about is Carnarvon. Oh, Carnarvon. Now, as you know, he was the man who financed King Tut's tomb removal, um, and he was the first to succumb to this supposed curse. Now, he accidentally tore open a mosquito bite while shaving and ended up dying of blood poisoning shortly thereafter. Now, this occurred just a few months after the tomb was opened and just six weeks after the press started reporting on the, quote, mummy's curse, which they thought afflicted anyone associated with disturbing that mummy. So legend has it that Lord Lord Carnarvon died. All of the lights in his house mysteriously went out that night. And one story I heard said all the lights in Cairo went yes, out. Yes, yeah. And the uh, the electricity that they had was run by the British Army, okay? And they couldn't figure out why. And it was like, uh, I think they said 20 minutes? Yeah. It was off. They couldn't yep. figure out why, and then it came back on. It's actually quite a long time. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's... That's freaky. Yeah. Oh, and 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 Carnarvon's dog, it dropped dead too. Hey, that sucks. <laughs> I mean, kill me, leave my dog leave alone. Like you're gonna curse me, kill me, and my dog. Right. No kidding. Dead gum. Dallas, I hope you make it, buddy. If I get cursed, I hope you make it. As he lays here underneath my feet and doesn't even look up. Yeah, he's like, whatever. Yeah, whatever, man. Just keep talking into a mic. <laughs> okay, so the the next person is Sir Bruce Ingham. Now, Howard Carter, the the archaeologist that we talked about before, gave a paperweight to his friend Ingham as a gift. The paperweight uh, appropriately consisted of a mummy's hand wearing a bracelet that was supposed to be inscribed with the phrase, Cursed be he who moves my body. Now, Ingham's house burned to the ground not long after receiving the gift, and when he tried to rebuild it, it was hit with a flood. That's right. So, so if you're uh, if you're keeping score at home, that's two deaths, one of which came from having a mummy's hand with a curse inscribed on a bracelet. Yeah. Now you know I collect don't, stuff, but I'm not going to collect that. <laughs> don't 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 accept cursed items, no. especially if the curse is written on them. <laughs> right. If if I open our PO box. In the next week or so. <laughs> yeah. And there is a, a cursed mummy's hand. There better be a return address on it because yeah. I'm sending it back. And the next show will give you our new P.O. box because we're not going to take it out. We're yeah, going to leave exactly. it in Exactly. I will just, <laughs> we'll just write off that the payment for that P.O. box. <laughs> we're good, man. We'll let that uh, the mailman who quits delivering my mail sometimes or puts it in the wrong box have it. Yeah, that's right. Here, this is for your great mail service. All right, the next person is George J. Gould. Now, Gould was a wealthy American financier and railroad executive, and he visited the, the tomb of King Tut in 1923. Now, he felt sick almost immediately afterward, and he never really recovered, and he died of pneumonia a few months later. So that guy walked in and was like, oh, sick, but dead. That's right. I mean, nothing real spectacular except he walked in and got sick yeah. like, almost immediately. Um, the, the next one is Aubrey Herbert. Now, 
It said that Lord Carnarvon's half-brother suffered from King Tut's curse merely by being related to him. Aubrey Herbert was born with a degenerative eye condition and became totally blind late in life. A doctor suggested that his rotten, infected teeth were somehow interfering with his vision, and Herbert had every single tooth pulled from his head in an effort to regain his sight. Guess what? Didn't work. Yeah. He did, however, die of sepsis as a result of the surgery. This was just five months after the death of his cursed brother. Yeah. See, told you it's getting weird. It's getting weird. I mean, and it, it seems, some of these seem like we're, we're stretching to get to it, but it's weird that it's happening to all these people. I mean, you got to think that the, the London Times had exclusivity on reporting anything about King Tut's tomb. Because Carnarvon needed to recoup some money, and so he had made a deal with the London Times that they could report on it. And immediately after George J. Gould died, they're posting stories about it being related to the curse. So the one media outlet that's reporting on anything King Tut related is now pushing stories about the curse. So all over London, people are talking about this curse. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is not like people have gone back and looked and said, oh, it's the curse. No, no, this was this was the the buzz around London. Yep. Everybody knew it at the time. People dropping dead because of this curse. Yep. Which is, I mean, with it happening like this, it better be front page news. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) All right. So on to number five now, Um, Hugh Evelyn White. Evelyn White was an archaeologist, visited Tut's tomb, and may have helped excavate the site. They're not entirely sure. Now, after seeing death sweep over about two dozen of his fellow excavators by 1924, Evelyn White hung himself, but not before writing, allegedly in his own blood, I have succumbed to a curse which forces me to disappear. It's... I mean, I don't even know what to say about that one. Yeah, something something was haunting this guy. Yep. I mean, it just, you know, if it was just the idea of the curse was enough to just drive him insane to say, I- I'm going to I'm gonna handle this myself before I die in some other horrific manner. Yep. Something. You know? Something got to him. And, and a lot of people at the time believed that the curse was what forced his hand to do this. Right. Drive him mad, yeah. basically. Now, number six is Aaron Ember. This is an American Egyptologist, and he was friends with many of the people who were present when the tomb was opened, including Lord Carnarvon. Now, Ember died in 1926 when his house in Baltimore burned down less than an hour after he and his wife hosted a dinner party. He could have exited safely, but his wife encouraged him to save a manuscript he had been working on while she fetched their son. Sadly, they and the family's maid died in the catastrophe. The name of Ember's manuscript was The Egyptian Book of the Dead. (laughs) I mean, maybe coincidence, but you know what Matt and I say about coincidences? Yeah. What do we say? 
After a while, it's not a coincidence. <laughs> Nothing very fancy. Yeah, that's right. It's just, it's a- we've said some stuff about coincidences, and I thought that maybe they would remember it, and I didn't have to remember it. And that's then you right. forced me to remember what we said. It's so. a coincidence that we bring up the thing about coincidences and don't remember what we've said about coincidences. Weird, isn't it? It is weird. <laughs> no, the long story short is, you know, yeah, stuff happens. If something happens this this concurrent. Yeah. You know, you, you begin to think, this is not a coincidence. <laughs> right, exactly. Exactly. Something's got to be afoot here. Now, Richard Bethel, uh, he was Carnarvon's secretary and the first person behind Carter to enter the tomb. This is the guy you were thinking about, Matt. Mm-hmm. He died in 1929 under what is called suspicious circumstances. He was found smothered in his room at an elite London gentleman's club. Soon after, the Nottingham Post mused, quote, The suggestion that the Honorable Richard Bethel had come under the curse was raised last year when there was a series of mysterious fires at his home. When some of the priceless finds from Tut's tomb were stored there. So there's no evidence really of a connection between the artifacts and Bethel's death, but, you know, people think that a lot of those artifacts mm-hmm. were stored at his house. Yeah. And, you know, if you're housing cursed artifacts, you 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 have a good chance of dying. Yeah. I don't want them. Not me either. You can keep the cursed stuff. So, Sir Archibald Douglas Reed. Now, this, this is, uh, you know, he wasn't an excavator. He wasn't an expedition backer, but he did apparently fall victim to the curse. Reed was a radiologist. He merely x-rayed Tut before the mummy was given to museum authorities. He got sick the next day and was dead three days later. Mm-hmm. So just messing around with it. At this point, if somebody is approaching you to going, hey, you, you want to take a look at King Tut stuff? I'd be like, no. Say no. Get that out of here. Yep. And King Tut who? Yeah. I'm, I'm out. I don't know what you're talking about. They, I'm may, gone. they may have cursed you by just mentioning him around <laughs> That's you. right. Well, now, James Henry Breasted, uh, he was another famous Egyptologist. Um, he was working with Carter when the tomb was opened. Shortly afterward, he allegedly returned home to find that his pet canary had been eaten by a cobra, and the cobra was still in the cage. Now, since the cobra is a symbol of the Egyptian monarchy and usually a motif motif that kings wore on their headdresses for protection, it was rather an ominous omen. Now, Breasted himself didn't die until 1935, but his death did occur immediately after a trip to Egypt. So, I mean, if a cobra shows up in my house... (laughs) There, I'm gonna You're think, in Egypt. Yeah, but either way, I'm going to think I'm cursed if a cobra yeah. shows up in my house. It w- Yeah, I mean, you know, because, yeah, the, the, the cobra was the symbol of the pharaoh. It was on the headdress, and it was meant to attack anyone that would attack the pharaoh. So there's some symbolism here that it just happened to be a cobra. But, you know, if a snake was going to get into your house in Egypt and eat your canary... Pretty good chance it was going to be a cobra. Yeah, no you know? kidding, right? They're, they're, you know, it's lousy with cobras over there. Yeah, I mean, 
It, it, I like that lousy with cobras over there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Howard Carter, we need to talk about his death. Even though he was never really afflicted with any weird illness. And he didn't believe in the curse, right. even after all this. Right. He, he ended up dying of lymphoma at the age of 64. But his tombstone says, may your spirit live. May you spend millions of years, you who love Thebes, sitting with your face to the north wind, your eyes beholding happiness. So maybe King Tut decided to spare him. Or because, like Matt said, he didn't believe in the curse, he didn't get hit by the curse. Yeah. And there's some that, you know, that were attributed to the curse that, that aren't on the list Adam did. Uh, Adam listed, um, you know, uh, Sir Lee Stack, he was the governor uh, general of Sudan. You know, he died on no, uh, 19th of November, 1924. He was assassinated while driving through Cairo, just out of the blue. But he had been affiliated with the archaeological dig. Um, A.C. Mace, he was another fellow who was part of the excavation team. He died in 28 from arsenic poisoning. I mean, now, these were all affiliated because they were unusual ways to die. Right. I mean, people just don't get assassinated. People just don't die from arsenic poisoning. You know, so all of these things were so strange and so bizarre. They were not natural causes. So anything like this was attributed to the curse. Right. Okay. Right. So even uh, Adam had mentioned uh, the Honorable Richard Bethel. Or I've heard it pronounced beat hell too. Heard it pronounced. I like Bethel. Better. I like Bethel too. <laughs> beat hell sounds bad. <laughs> his father had artifacts in his apartment. He jumped out of like the the sixth floor window, seventh floor, seventh floor window. Even worse. <laughs> yeah, that's one floor worse. Uh, you know, and they were like, "What?" He jumped. He, the The artifacts in his house caused him to jump out of the window. Yep. You know, so that's part of the curse too. And like I said, some of these are a stretch. Yeah. But, you know, none of these deaths that were affiliated with the King Touch curse were natural. You know, nobody just, uh, you know, I, you know, I was already kind of sick and, you know, yep. then I got worse and I lingered on for a few months and I died. No, it Lived was to 102. It was all these people were perfectly healthy before they discovered the tomb. Mm -hmm. And then they had some weird demise over the next 10 years. Right. Yeah. In t from the 29th of November, um, when the tomb was opened, 10 years, there were 11 deaths attributed to the curse. Yeah. 11. All of people affiliated with it. Yeah. So that's a little weird, don't you think? Yeah. But believe it or not, it, it didn't stop there. It didn't stop there. But there were some people that, more modern people, that said, was this really a curse? You know, was there ever really a curse? You know, what other things could this be attributed to? One man decided that he was going to investigate some of these deaths, and he found a very interesting connection to not all, but some of these deaths. Now, this man is historian Mark Bainan, and in 2011, he published a book called London's Curse, Murder, Black Magic, and Tutankhamun, 
in the 1920s West End. Now, in this book, Binion claims that he has put the jigsaw pieces together, formulating the idea that at least seven of the deaths related to King Tut's curse could have been murders carried out by none other than Alistair Crowley. Dum, dum, dum. I really didn't think that I was going to come across Alistair Crowley's name researching the curse of King Tut's tomb. Right. But lo and behold, here it is. So We always find the weird stuff. I know, and that's what makes it Graveyard Tales, is we're going to find the weird stuff. So in this book, Binion claims Crowley wrote extensive diaries, and although none of the deaths were directly mentioned in his diaries, he notes that in the entries on the day after the deaths, Crowley states that his mood was lifted. So he, he felt better, you know, but why? Well, so much of Crowley's... Crowley. That's right, because he's weird. <laughs> God, he's weird. But so we could do a show on just him, and he's bizarre. But I'd, I'd almost be afraid to. <laughs> well, you said it. I'm writing it down while you talk. <laughs> Keep going. I'm writing. So, so much of Crowley's belief system was steeped in ancient Egypt. So he would have viewed the opening of King Tut's tomb as a desecration. I mean, this was a man who he had he had traveled the world, but yet they can pinpoint his location in London when at least four of the six deaths occurred. Now, everyone, like I said, at the time was obsessed with this curse of of Tutankhamun. I said that funny. Close. That's yeah, close. Close enough. We meant what you knew. Yeah. So, but until he wrote this book, no one had ever realized that these people could have just been murdered. Okay? Because like I said, they're not natural deaths. Right. But but let's look at what um, what Mark uh, Bainan says could have been attributed to Aleister Crowley. Now, one name we haven't mentioned it, I don't I don't think. Raul Loveday. Um he was a 23-year-old Oxford undergraduate and was a follower of Crowley's cult at a Sicilian abbey. Now, he died on the same day at the I knew very a Sicilian hour. abbey. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. I did too. <laughs> Now, he died on the same day at the very hour of Carter's much-publicized opening of uh, King Tut's burial chamber. He died after drinking the blood of a cat sacrificed in one of Crowley's rituals, and Bainan argues that he was deliberately poisoned. You drank the blood of a cat? <laughs> Listen. What do you think is going to happen? I, I don't make this stuff up. I'm, I'm just telling you what I found. Yeah, okay. I know. I'm just saying. But it was, drank cat blood. I, I think it was the fact that it happened right at the same time. So what? remember what he's saying. It's not part of a curse that Crowley poisoned this guy. Right. You know, be, because of, you know, this was the exact time where this, you know, horrible desecration of opening King Tut's tomb was occurring. Mm -hmm. Okay. Prince Ali Kamel Fami Bey. Okay. He was a 23-year-old Egyptian prince shot dead by his French wife of six months, Marie Marguerite, in London Savoy Hotel, shortly after he was photographed visiting the tomb. Now, Bainan says that Crowley and Marie Marguerite 
had been lovers in Paris, and she was working as a hostess at the Folles Bergere, and he was a regular patron at the same venue. Now, the suggestion here is that Crowley put her up to the shooting after seeing the photograph of him visiting the tomb. Okay? That one may be a little bit more. I think it's interesting. They're all 23. There's a lot of 23s involved in this. Yeah. And I, I have no idea what the significance is, but the number 23 comes up a lot. Well, I tell you what, I don't know if you saw. I've got numerology on our episode I list, so, so it's we'll get into that again. one day. Again, but of course, it's it's 1923. Um, there's 23-year-old people that, you know, this next one died on the 23rd of September in 1923, and that's Aubrey Herbert, who Adam had mentioned. Yep. Now, believe it or not, Marie Marguerite was acquitted of the murder of Prince Ali Kamel Fami Bey. Um, Aubrey Herbert, the half-brother of Lord Carnarvon, died of blood poisoning after that routine dental operation that was supposed to restore his sight. Right. What about pulling all of your teeth to restore your sight sounds routine? Yeah, right. No kidding. Nothing to me. Okay. Now, he was in a hospital in Park Lane. Now, he had only recently returned from his own trip to Luxor. Now, Bainan speculates that Crowley was behind the death and may have used Marie Marguerite to do his dirty work. So that not only did she murder her husband, but she may have had some involvement with uh, with Aubrey's death as well. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, remember old Beat Hell Bethel? Yep. Okay. So Captain Richard Bethel, because we like Bethel better. Yep. Now, he died on the 15th of November in 1929. Now, he was Howard Carter's 46-year-old personal secretary, and he was found dead in his bed at the exclusive Mayfair Bath Club. Mm. Okay. Gentleman's Club, as, as Adam said. Now, Bethel was said to have been in perfect health. He was in it, it was initially thought that he died of a heart attack, but his symptoms raised suspicion that he was smothered to death as he slept. Now, Crowley had only recently returned to London and was often a guest of novelist W. Somerset Maugham at the club. So they've got a, now a connection. Crowley was a guest at the club and Bethel died at the club. Crowley is unhappy about them desecrating King mm-hmm. Tut's tomb and says, just mm, so happened to be there. Carter's secretary. Yep. And you know, we're going to, we're going to handle this. Yep. Okay. Lord Westbury. He was Bethel's father. We just mentioned him. At 77, he was believed to have thrown himself off of his seventh floor St. James apartment. But Bainan found that it was practically impossible for an elderly man to have climbed out of the window ledge and suggest that Crowley threw him over. Well, okay, then. Okay. (laughs) It's CSI 100 years later. (laughs) CSI Crowley edition. All right, here's another one. Edgar Steele died on the 24th of February in 1930. Um, Edgar Steele was 57, and he was in charge of handling the tomb artifacts at London's British Museum. Now, he died at St. Thomas's Hospital after a minor stomach operation. Now, 
What's minor about a stomach I don't know. Operation? And, I, and this one isn't as clear because it just says that, you know, Bainan speculates that Crowley was behind his death. How? He's creeping into hospitals yeah, and was he, poking at people, giving them the wrong medicine? He was disguised as a doctor. Maybe. You know, he's got the mask on so you can't tell under his hood. Yeah. and Go- Google a picture of Aleister cape. Crowley. How does this guy disguise himself as anything? This guy. Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, you know, he could dress up like Ronald McDonald and get around better. Yeah. I mean, you know, this guy looked, and, he looked crazy. And you would still know it was Crowley. <laughs> that's right. You're like, eh, that's Ronald McCrowley. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Now, the last one, Sir Ernest Wallace Budge um, died on the 23rd of November, 1934. He was a former keeper in the British Museum's Department of Egyptian and Assyrian Antiquities. He was found dead in his bed in Bloomsbury at age 77. He was a friend of Lord Carnarvon. He had been responsible for displaying the artifacts from Luxor. Now, Bainan says that there is evidence that Budge and Crowley were associates on the London occult scene. So now here's, here's maybe an associate of Crowley who's been involved in displaying artifacts from this desecrated tomb. Maybe this one's a little bit closer. Who knows? But this, he's the first and only person to attribute these deaths to uh, an actual individual who murdered them under the guise of the King Tut's curse. Yeah. Which, like we said, it was hot at the time. Right. Seems like a good idea. It, it would be a good cover for you. Yeah. And, you know, there he goes into a lot more detail about um, Crowley being obsessed with Jack the Ripper there were some similar things uh, with the killings compared to Jack the Ripper killings and that maybe Crowley was using the the King Tut's curse to just commit these killings um, and to pay homage to Jack the Ripper. There was uh, some information that said that Crowley believed that these killings could turn him invisible and that, you know, as he killed people, he could become invisible. The, yeah. This guy, man. <laughs> He would make a good graveyard episode. I'm telling you, he is nuts. <laughs> nuts. Uh, all right. So real quick, let's discuss some other incidents uh, revolving around mummy curses. Not, oh, yeah. Okay. Not necessarily King Tut, but just some just other mummies in general. Mummies in general. I've seen the movie. Yeah. I mean, good movies started out being good movies. and The, then, fir- the first ones were good. Then some other stuff happened and they're not that good. <laughs> Now, in 1971, there was an excavation in Saqqara. An Egyptologist named Walter Brian Emery found a small statue of the Egyptian god of death, Osiris. Now, at the end of the day, he and his assistant returned to the dig site's office, which was in a nearby village. Now, Emery took the statue of Osiris with him. Once at the office, Emery went into the restroom. After a few moments, his assistant began to hear Emery wailing. Now, he ran into there, and he found Emery clutching the sink's basin, and he was, you know, clearly going through some kind of trauma. His assistant said that Emery stood there as if paralyzed. I grabbed him by the shoulders and dragged him onto the couch. Then I ran for the telephone. Emery was diagnosed with paralysis of the right side of his body and was unable to speak, and he died the following day. Wow. So could have been something else, but yeah. could have also been the fact that you stole an Osiris statue. That's right. You know, don't steal Osiris statues. If you take anything away from this, don't steal Egyptian relics. That's right. 
Now, speaking of stolen relics, in 2004, a man visiting Egypt reportedly stole a relic from the Valley of the Kings. And this is the same area that King Tut's tomb was. Now, he returned home to Germany. When he did, he was overcome by a fever that progressed to paralysis, and the man died shortly after. His stepson was convinced that the artifact was cursed and returned the relic to Egypt's Supreme Council of Antiquities in the hopes that his father's soul would rest in peace. So, again, don't steal antiquities, people. Yeah, don't. It's not worth the curse. <laughs> no, it not, it, there's nothing worth the curse. Exactly. You know, ever. Except that tongue twister that you just almost fell into. <laughs> <laughs> it was worth it to get me to say that. Yep, it was. <laughs> All right. So, uh, talking about uh, Tut, in 1972... The Tut curse apparently returned, and it was because some of the artifacts from King Tut's tomb were sent to the British Museum to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the tomb's discovery. Now, Dr. Gamal Merez, the director of antiquities at the museum in Cairo, died the night after he handled the artifacts that were to be sent to England. But it didn't stop there. Many of the airmen who were aboard the aircraft that were carrying the artifacts to England, fell victim as well. Three of the men on the aircraft suffered from heart attacks after coming into contact with the artifacts. One of the men had a heart attack at the same time every year, the same day that he flew aboard the plane with the relics, until one of those attacks killed him. <laughs> so annually, on the day that marked when he flew in the plane with the relics, he would have a heart attack. I, coincidence? I'm, I'm shaking my head. You can't see this, yeah. but I'm shaking my head. Yeah. Because it's just, it, it's it's strange. I mean. Yeah, it, it's it's odd coincidences. All right, so this one I have titled Mummy Ghosts. All right, Mummy Ghosts. In, in 1699, <laughs> Lewis Pincher wrote of a mummy's curse in his book, Treaties of Embalming. I'm not going to pronounce the French because I wouldn't do it justice. He recounted the story of a Polish man who had purchased two mummies from Alexandria, presumably to study them for medical purposes. As he was sailing home across the Mediterranean Sea, he began to be haunted by two ghosts who suddenly appeared on the boat. Now, this guy apparently acted quickly and threw the mummies overboard. As soon as he did, his visions of these ghosts stopped, and it was like almost instantaneous when the sea swallowed up these bodies. So he's, I mean, I guess he did the right thing. We lost some mummies, but I guess he did the right thing, <laughs> you know? Yeah, the but, sea took them back. Yep, pretty much. Now, I'm sure, I know at least one of our listeners knows Mr. Zahi Hawass pretty personally. And I'm just going to keep my opinions to myself on this one. But the Egyptologist, Egyptologist Zahi Hawass said that one day as he was transporting artifacts from the site of Kamambu Bilo, his aunt died. One year later on the same day, his uncle died. And a year after that, his cousin died. Now, the newspapers reported that the curse of the pharaohs had claimed these members of Hawass's family. 
But Hawass disagrees, saying the truth is there is no curse of the pharaohs. Yeah, and I mean, I've I've watched videos of Hawass standing in front of the inscription of of a curse, you know, translating it. And and just kind of going, ah, you know. <laughs> There's no curse. There's no curse. Now, we, we've talked about a lot of death with mummies. What if there is the opposite effect? There was a young boy visiting the Egyptian Museum in Cairo, and he became the target of a miracle, not a curse. Now, according to Egyptologist, again, Zahi Hawass, the boy was extremely ill. But as soon as he looked into the eyes of the mummy of King Amos I, his illness was cured. That's all the details we have. But, you know, short little, maybe it fixed him. Maybe yeah, it didn't. Who knows? I couldn't find any more detail on that. I looked. Yeah. And there was no other detail on what it was, when it was, anything like that. Yeah. But. Well, you know, strangely enough, the the curse or the idea of the curse, you know, it, it, it continues on today. But um, could there be a reasonable scientific explanation no. for how this how this is all going down. No. Maybe for a few, maybe not for all. But for one American family, um it was ridiculously strange. It it was a it was terrible. But they were able to pinpoint a scientific explanation directly from King Tut's tomb. Right. And okay. When Matt and I were discussing this, I'll just tell you this before he gets into it. When Matt and I were discussing this, it's horrible what happened, but I I love this case, and and you'll see why, but I love this case because of the scientific explanation that they came up with. And how they got there. Exactly. Okay. So in 1995, Cheryl Munson and her husband Gary took a trip to Egypt. Cheryl was a student of art history, and so a trip like this was the trip of a lifetime. Now, Gary describes their venture down into Tut's tomb. Now, he notes the dark blues and reds that were painted on the walls. Now, he says he noticed Cheryl's hand inching upward until she was rubbing her hand across the paint. Now, a guide saw her and quickly scolded her as touching anything was not allowed. Now, Cheryl's reply to that was that one of her teachers had told her, if you ever get the chance to go, you have to touch the paint because you may never get the opportunity again. Now, remember, she's she's Makes an sense. art history student, and the paints that they would have used to produce those rich colors, um, that, that's, that's very interesting to yeah, an yeah. art historian. Now, three weeks after returning home, Cheryl began to have a slight cough. Now, Gary notes that the cough gradually worsened until it seemed Cheryl was coughing all the time. Now, he urged Cheryl to see a doctor, but she refused, saying that she had enough of doctors during a previous battle with Hodgkin's disease. Now, eventually, Cheryl had no choice but to seek medical help. Now, at that point, her lungs had begun shutting down, and she feared it was the Hodgkins returning. It was not. Doctors were baffled as to what was causing her illness. 
They took biopsies of her lungs and they did microscopic examination of her secretions. Now, those examinations revealed mold spores known as Aspergillus niger. Now, for healthy individuals, this mold, this fungus, is harmless. But Cheryl's immune system was weakened from her battle with cancer. Now, Cheryl died just 10 days after going into the hospital. Okay, so it worked really fast. But still, still investigating after her death, the doctors wanted to know how and where she had come into contact with the mold. Now, knowing of the Munson's trip to Egypt, the doctors contacted the Egyptology department at the University of Pennsylvania. Why would they do this? Because the doctors wanted to know if this fungus had ever been documented before. So they knew that she had visited several tombs. They knew that she had gone to King Tut's tomb. They were hoping to find out, was this fungus located in any or all of the tombs? Right. And it was by Howard Carter himself, the man who found the tomb. Carter had noted that what he initially believed was to be chipped paint on the walls of King Tut's tomb was actually a fungus growing on the walls, and it had flourished in the damp, closed space. That fungus? Aspergillus niger. So it had come full circle. A woman dies of a mysterious infection. The doctors go one step further and investigate, and they find a scientific explanation for her death. Right. And so incredible. So that, that leads us right into what we always say. What do you believe? Exactly. Do you believe that there was a curse on any of the tombs of the pharaohs, but specifically King Tut's? Do you believe that all of these people died of mysterious circumstances because they had some affiliation with the tomb or artifacts that had been removed? Or do you believe, like in the case of Cheryl Munson, that there was a perfectly good scientific explanation that just needed maybe some modern science and someone with a little bit more oomph to take it a step further and figure out why? Or do you believe that the Aspergillus fungus was actually part of the curse? You know, because there could be that thought, too. Yeah. That... It, the on, the only tomb that they found Aspergillus in was that's, King Tut. That's right. So why would it only grow in one tomb if all of them were basically the same conditions? Maybe it is the King Tut curse that that's how it manifested itself. Or maybe it was the fact that it was the one tomb that had not been exposed by tomb raiders exactly sure and main maintained that closed damp mm-hmm. environment that let a you know a, a fungus like this flourish and however grow. i mean it, it's been open for how long and she was able to contract it that is true so that's very true it's been open for you know from 95 it had been open for 70 years yep you know so why was the fungus still there? Right. If, Why did, if it killed it off in other tombs, then 
And like we said, in healthy individuals, this this doesn't affect you. Your body's able to fight it off. Right. You know, but with her compromised immune system, it was able to grow and attack her cells. Right. And, you know, and ultimately, sadly, caused her death, you know, which is, you know, so ironic that this was this was the trip for her. Yeah. You know, this was this was the the ultimate experience to go and to see these tombs firsthand and to look at those hieroglyphics, you know, that she had to touch them. And, and, you know, it's it's an airborne. You you inhale it. So I don't even think touching it really made a difference for her. Just being in that environment was probably what what did the damage. Right. You know, but people visit that tomb, you know, all the time, all the time. Yeah. You know, and, and you don't hear of stories like this. It's just, you know, again, these deaths are really, really strange. They're weird. You know, it makes you question, you know, what what really what really went on down there? Yep. You know, and if they weren't strange, there wouldn't be that that question of is that a curse? That's right. Is it? That's right. So, like Matt said, tell us what you think. Hit us up, email, Facebook direct message, Twitter direct message. Hit us up. Let us know what you think. Is the curse legit? Is it all hyped up normal stuff? And we're just, you know, making a big to-do about nothing? Yep. Let us know. Yep. And uh, as we always say, go check out our website, graveyardpodcast.com. Um, you can find links to buy our new merchandise. Go check that out. I'm telling you, it's awesome. I mean, it just it looks fantastic. It looks great on a shirt. I'm gonna have one looks of great everything. Great on a poster. Yeah. You know, if if you if you dig our stuff, you're gonna love this. You can get wall tapestries. Big old wall tapestries. Get a big old wall tapestry of it. So I think we we're gonna get one for the graveyard. So. Yeah. Put it on a flag out like a flagpole <laughs> out your car window. Just yep. drive down the. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. That's all right. <laughs> <laughs> Hit us up on Twitter, Facebook, uh, Instagram. Uh, just search Graveyard Tales. Um, get in our Facebook group. Uh, we have some fantastic discussions in there, you know, virtually every day. The people are fantastic. And as we always say, go and rate and review us on iTunes because that helps bring us up the charts and it brings more people into the graveyard. So until next time, we'll save you a seat in the graveyard. See you soon. <laughs> you got to edit that. This is written all up. <laughs> I didn't. Let me start again.